Well, I do keep your Bibles open at that great little section of Acts. One of the things we've been doing Sunday evenings, if I can remind us, uh, those who have been attending regularly, is uh, in our study of Acts, reminding, reminding us that the book of Acts is not primarily given as a handbook for the Christian life. In fact, the book of Acts should be read and understood according to the instructions on the packet. Uh, one, one of the things we men are bad at is we start constructing things without looking at the instructions. I see a lot of women smiling there, so I'm just confessing that is something that I do along with everybody else. And then, of course, halfway through the construction, there are bits and pieces that don't seem to fit into whatever it is we're doing because they've been put wrongly in there in the first place. Uh, or, or something has been left out that should be there in order to make this thing fit together. Well, I think sometimes the way we, we look at the book of Acts is a bit like the way some men set about the task of building something. They don't read the instructions on the packet. If you read the instructions on the packet, suddenly a lot of the problems people have in their Christian lives evaporate and some of the tensions that are created by the people who teach that this book was given as a handbook for Christian living uh, are immediately dissolved. Because what it says on the packet is that the book of Acts is part two of the book of Luke. It's Luke part two. It is a record of salvation history. It stands alongside the record of the events of Moses and uh, Isaiah and Elijah and Jesus. It is a record of what has happened, what has been done. It is not a template to put across your life or over my life. It is a record of the historic achievements of the risen Lord through his apostles in their day. Now when you have that in mind and you come to this story, you can then understand why it is that the writer Luke gives so much attention to the story of Saul of Tarsus. He already knows, because he's writing after many of Paul's letters have been received as the very word of God and the written word of God by the church, he knows very well that Saul, who becomes Paul, has such a monumental influence in the life of the church. Why would we give him the recognition we do? Why is it that I today, preaching the Word of God, when I quote Paul, can say what Paul says, Jesus says? What Paul says, God says. That's an enormous statement. And yet I'm making the same claim for Paul as I make for Moses. What Moses says, God says. Why do I accept Moses? I accept Moses because of his astounding experience or encounter with God at the burning bush, what he said, the prophecies that he made that came true, and the acceptance he receives by the Lord Jesus. Why do I accept Paul on the same level as Moses? He gives us most of our New Testament. Why do I accept Paul? I accept Paul because of the encounter he had with God, which Luke projects at the beginning of this chapter as being of equal significance as the experience or encounter that Moses had with God. Many of the features are the same. And much of the response to Saul is the kind of response that was given to Moses, the spokesman of God under the Old Covenant. 
Paul himself says that he understood that to be his ministry, that his ministry was similar to Moses, except that his task was to etch the law of God by the power of the Spirit into the hearts of the people of God, not simply etch it on tablets of stone. Now with that in mind, I give you that bit for free by the way, that was just a free introduction to the sermon tonight. It doesn't count as far as the time is concerned that I have left for me. Uh, following from the story then of this great encounter that, uh, that Saul has with God that we read last time, and you can read for yourself if you weren't here at the beginning of this chapter, this amazing encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, not only risen Lord, but exalted Lord Jesus, we now find two incidents recorded that center around the two cities of Damascus and Jerusalem. What links the two stories together are these similarities. There is bold preaching, there are murderous plots, and there are narrow escapes. All of them center around the character of Saul, this man who has done a 180-degree turnaround. Everybody who knew anything about Rabbi Saul of Tarsus knew that he was an aggressive proponent of Judaism and an aggressive opponent of this new heresy that was known as the way, what we know as incipient Christianity. We know his record, hauling people from their homes, destroying local fellowships of believers, upsetting the happiness of men, women, and children, driven by a passion for the law of God. That was Paul. And you might say that Saul hit the ground running because we're told that immediately, immediately he is teaching in the synagogues. Verse 19. Immediately he is setting about the task of speaking. There's no, there's no allowing him to get his uh, act together. There's no time spent in study. He's immediately out there saying what he needs to say about the Son of God. Now that's, that takes something. Let me tell you. I remember when uh, I was in school uh, in my early teenage years, we had a history teacher that was the man who inspired my love of history. And uh, he was the one who got me talking in class about my Christian faith. And unknown to me, he announced one day to the class that he had entered my name in the school debate. There was an annual debate. And uh, he had entered my name to speak for a motion, a motion that was a very unpopular motion. I forget what it was now. It was something to do with Christianity or religion and the world and evil and all the rest of it. And uh, he had entered my name, because he couldn't find anybody else, I think, uh, to speak for the motion. He announced this in class. There was no way out of it. And I found myself there in the great hall of the school, uh, facing the entire school uh, assembly and having to stand up, stand up for Jesus. That's effectively what I had to do. It was my biggest audience so far. It was my first ever debate. It was my first public address. It was my first open attestation in front of people at large that I was a Christian, and I was 14. And that was scary. Now, I don't know if it's scary for Saul of Tarsus now to find himself in an entirely different and uncomfortable locale, speaking about something utterly new, new to him, and certainly new to the people he was speaking to. He found himself for the first time openly confessing himself to be a Christian. Now one of the things we learned last week, let me underline it again, is this. Saul's conversion is unique. It's unique. 
Saul's conversion is not the template for everybody's conversion. It is unique in that Jesus appeared to him. Paul says himself, last of all, Jesus appeared risen to him as to someone born out of due time. That doesn't happen today. It does not happen today. Jesus does not appear bodily in his risen glory to people today. People may have visions. They may uh, hear Jesus call them by his word and so on, but they don't have an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Last of all to me, says Paul. So it's unique. Secondly, it's unusual. It's unusual, but not, not unrepeatable. Unusual because of the suddenness of it all. It was a sudden conversion. His turnaround was a huge surprise to everybody. Nobody expected it. It was a big surprise to the Apostle Paul himself. Well, that's the background. In these verses we read today, we find him now active. We find him preaching boldly. We find him provoking hostility. And we find him precipitating growth and movement in the church. Let's look at those three things together. First of all, he is preaching boldly. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives us a personal testimony. Let me read it to you. Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, and this is the gospel that I preach to you. So there's his testimony. It's not man's gospel. He did not receive it from man. He received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now look as he recalls the story. Do you notice impresses these facts upon us? He's converted and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Immediately. There's no hesitation. How is he able to do this? He is able to do this for a number of reasons. He's able to do this because, you see, he knew some of the story, some of the background. Like everybody else in Jerusalem, he knew, the, knew the, that the tomb was empty. He had heard the reports of the appearances of Jesus to his disciples. He knew some of that information. He had heard them talk about resurrection. He had listened to the speech of Stephen as he'd explained the Old Testament background as Christians understood it to the coming of Jesus into the world. He had heard all of that. He understood his enemy. He knew the enemy's account of events. He knew what the enemy believed. Like any good opponent, he had studied up and was well-versed in what Christians were saying. And when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus, you see, all of those facts fell into place. If the, the Lord Jesus was alive and there he was talking to him, then the accounts of the empty tomb meant something. The accounts of the appearances meant something. Then suddenly what Stephen was saying made sense. Because what Stephen did was lay down in his speech the intellectual foundation for a rabbi like Saul to understand a process by which you could understand the fact of encountering the risen Lord Jesus. It made sense. It made sense of Scripture. But more than that, you see, what Paul is saying in Galatians is that the Lord Jesus, in the moment and instant of that encounter with him, gave him a revelation of himself gave him an understanding of himself that drew on all of Saul's learning, all of his understanding, all of his background, 
but added this plus, this addition, this accession of power, this, this revelation of unseen things in an instant, as it were, unveiling to him these hidden realities. He saw the Lord Jesus not only risen, he saw the Lord Jesus exalted to the highest place of power in the universe. And there's something else he understood that day as he was encountering Jesus. He understood who Jesus was. He understood that if Jesus was alive, that he could not now confute the arguments that the Christians had been making for Jesus. If Jesus was alive, and not only that, he had seen Jesus on the throne of heaven, that meant that Jesus was equal with God. That meant that he was God. That meant he'd been exalted to the very highest place in the universe. That meant that if Jesus had been really a man, that he was God incarnate. He was God with us. He was the God-man. And that meant, that meant that for all his faith in God, for all his passion for the glory of God, for all his love of the law of God, he had been an unbeliever up until that moment. This would have been devastating to Saul, that he had been an unbeliever. Oh, but Saul believed in God. Yes, he believed in God. But at that moment when he saw that the only God there is, is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he understood that if you don't believe in God through Jesus Christ, you don't believe in God. And he was an unbeliever. This shook him to the very core. For Saul of Tarsus, his conversion was the discovery that he wasn't the believer he thought he was. And he needed salvation. Now Luke gives us two concise statements of what lay at the heart of Saul's new worldview. It was this, that this Jesus, the hated, rejected, crucified criminal, is in fact the Son of God and the Messiah. Look at verse 20 and verse 22. Immediately, he's there in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus, saying, He is the Son of God. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the fulfiller of all of God's promises to Israel, the Christ. So what you have to do is you have to take God's, uh, Saul's first words to Jesus, the, the first words that come out of his mouth when he encountered Jesus on the Damascus road, Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And then you're to put that together with these statements. He is the Son of God, and He is the Messiah. Who is this Lord? This Lord Jesus. Who is He? He is the Son of God, and He is the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that he should proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. Look, in his record, has used a number of phrases in reference to the Lord Jesus. He, he doesn't use this one. Other people refer to Jesus as the Christ, the Lord, the Righteous One, the Judge. Those are most common. Stephen, as he's being stoned, refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, and Saul would have heard, would have heard Stephen speak of Jesus in those terms, the Son of Man. So why does he call him the Son of God? I remember Saul 
is a rabbi. Saul is familiar with the Old Testament. He understands very well what he has seen when he encounters the Lord Jesus. He has seen the man, Christ Jesus, exalted to the throne of heaven. And that makes him think. It makes him think of the way in which God has revealed himself through history in the Scriptures. The Son of God. You look at that phrase in the Bible, you find that phrase is used of Adam. Adam is the Son of God, made in God's image. It's used of Israel, corporately, the nation. Israel is the Son of God. Out of Egypt I called my Son. The Son of God is a favorite title for the King, for King David especially, but for all the kings of Israel. The Son of God. So to the Hebrew scholar Saul, you see, he would immediately have thought that the Messiah was going to be the new Adam, head of a new humanity, a new Israel, a son who did not disobey God and did not break God's law and did not commit idolatry. And he would be the promised son of David, the, 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 the last and future king who was to come into the world, the new David, the greater David. He would have recalled Sam too. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. My king, my son. He sees Jesus on the throne. On the throne. He says, He's sitting on David's throne. He is David's son. He is the king who is to have the nations as his inheritance. He would have fast-forwarded to Psalm 89, the promise of the last and future king. What does God say about this last and future king? I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And then God makes this promise. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm for him forever. I will establish his offspring forever. His throne will last as long as the heavens last. And as Saul recalled these things, you see, he fits these things in with what he saw. He saw the risen Jesus exalted on the throne of heaven, having the highest honors. And he says, this Jesus, this Jesus is God's anointed King. He is one with God. He is equal to God. He has the very nature of God. He is the Lord's anointed one. That's why when you come to Romans, for example, one of his great books, Paul, as he's introducing the gospel, he summarizes it in these terms. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand uh, through the prophets and Holy Scripture, concerning His Son. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. The Son of God with power. You know what that means? It means that when Saul is declaring Jesus is the Son of God, he's saying Jesus is God. Begotten by the Father. C.S. Lewis reminds us 
that uh, when you beget, this is what he writes, when you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs that turn into little birds. But when you make, when you create something, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver builds a dam. A man makes a computer. But only a man begets a man. When it says that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father, it's saying two things. It's saying on the one hand that God the Father is not God the Son. God the Father is not God the Son. They're distinct centers of consciousness within the Godhead. But secondly, the Father and the Son are one God, not two gods. There is only one Godness. And if the Father and the Son share it, there is one essence, one divine nature, that from all eternity, from all eternity, without ever a beginning, the Father has always had a perfect image of Himself to look at face to face with Himself, within the Godhead, always. What Saul is saying when he says Jesus is the Son of God is not only that He is God, but he's saying this, that Adam in Himself and Israel is a corporate entity, and David, in his office as king, were all precursors to the coming of the Son himself. Let me illustrate. Take the first man, Adam. He was meant to multiply and fill the earth. That was part of his role. He was to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God and reclaim the earth so that Eden spread round the whole globe. Without sin, that's what would have happened. And then at some point in that process, the divine image bearers would have been transformed and given bodies that would last forever. And the new heavens and new earth would, would have kicked in. But of course, that didn't happen. Adam failed in that commission. The commission goes to Israel. Israel is to be a kind of corporate Adam, and they fail too. They break God's law, just as Adam breaks God's law. They lose Canaan like Adam lost Eden. Out they go. David comes along. David is a great man. David is a great king. But David, along with Israel and Adam, all fail. They all fall short. And we're left longing for a new Adam, a new human being that will be perfect. We're longing for a new Israel, one who does the will of God and keeps the law of God. We're longing for a new David who is qualified to reign over us all. Galatians 4 gives the foundation for this hope. When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came as the Son of God in order that we who are alienated from God might be adopted into the family of God and become heirs and sharers in the inheritance that belongs to the Son. And so by grace we all, men and women, we all become sons of God in the sense that all of us become inheritors of the Father's estate. And Saul saw Jesus exalted. He saw Jesus enthroned as the King. Now we can talk about the reign of Jesus in two ways. We can talk about His essential reign and we can talk about His mediatorial reign. That is, he reigns simply as God. Let me put it like this. 
Jesus' essential reign belongs to him as the second person of the Godhead. As the second person of the Godhead, his reign and rule are unchanged and are unchangeable. You can't do anything to that. You can never alter it. There's no movement in that. That never ends. Even when he's in the world, in humanity, he is still the second person of the Godhead and he still shares with the Father the reign over all things, all things. That is his essential kingship. But then there's his mediatorial kingship. The kingship he exercises as the savior and redeemer of his elect. The one who is the mediator, the go-between, between the blessings of God and our sinful selves. That kingship, that kingship, belongs to him as the incarnate Son of God, the God-man. And it was this reign that he assumed at his exaltation. This reign... The mediatorial reign of Jesus, unlike his essential reign, this mediatorial reign of Jesus is subject to change. It can grow. It can develop. It can multiply. It can bring in more and more people into its sway. It can develop as the church develops. By acknowledging Jesus' essential reign, believers particularly confess Jesus with the Father and the Holy Spirit to be one God. By acknowledging Jesus' mediatorial reign, believers confess that Jesus is the risen Lord who purchased us with his own blood and rules history for the sake of his church in the world. Now this is what Saul was preaching when he said Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, the promised King of Israel. I want you to hear this. You see what Saul does. He doesn't massage the egos of his congregation. He, he doesn't tell them to feel better about themselves or to do better with themselves. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He doesn't address even the felt needs of the people to whom he's speaking. He points them immediately and urgently as a matter of absolute primacy to the person of the Lord Jesus. This Lord Jesus. This Lord he encountered on the road to Damascus. This Lord who came in blazing, blinding glory as Isaiah had seen him and as Moses had seen him. This Lord is the Son of God and the Christ And our primary problem is not, is not that we're stealing and lying and murdering and coveting. Those are secondary problems. Our primary problem is we don't believe in the God who is there. Our primary problem is we offend against the first table of the law that has to do with our response to the God who is there. So Paul is preaching, Saul is preaching boldly. And secondly, he's provoking hostility. He can't preach boldly without provoking some hostility. And that's what we find happening here. We find havoc. The word havoc is used in the Greek. The very same word that was used earlier to describe what Saul was doing in Jerusalem. When, when we're told that Saul in Jerusalem was uh, causing havoc in the church by hauling people away from their homes and, and upsetting people and driving people out of the city. 
The havoc that Saul was causing, now Saul is causing havoc of a different kind. Now it's preaching Jesus that's causing the havoc in Damascus. In verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who were living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. We're getting the first glimpse here of the, of the Paul that we've come to know and love. The Paul who could go anywhere preaching the gospel. The Paul who could argue with anybody about the gospel. The Paul who gave us Romans and Galatians and all these other books. We're finding the first hint of this man. This is the first little cameo appearance of the Saul that we're going to know in the future. Luke refers to many days. He kind of conflates the story here. I think the story is that, that Saul was in Damascus and then he went to Arabia and then he came back to Damascus. I think if you put all the bits and pieces together, that's a scenario that takes place. Luke doesn't bother with all that history. He wants us to understand the movement. The movement is this. Saul preaches in Damascus. Saul is persecuted in Damascus. Probably the reason for the persecution lies in his visit to Arabia. He went down to Arabia for a little while. We don't know what he did there. Some people speculate that he went, into a, you know, went to a monastery or something and he spent time reading and studying and praying. I don't think that happened. I don't think that happened. Is there anything you read in the New Testament that gives you for one moment the idea that Saul, who became Paul, could sit for five minutes anywhere and waste his time? Immediately, he is preaching Jesus is the Son of God. He can't stop him. He can't help himself. He can no more go and tie himself down somewhere reading books than anything. He, he, is, he is driven to preach the gospel. He knows he doesn't have a lot of time left, so he wants to preach as much as he can. I can identify with that. I know I'm going to be dead soon. I know I need to preach as much as I can while I'm still here in a breath. You need to hear it. Okay, that, fine. That wasn't a big response. But yeah. while, he's down in, while he's down in Arabia... He really ticks off the king there. He tells us that in 2 Corinthians 11. He upset King Aratas IV. King Aratas IV had an Echnath, that is uh, one of his guys, down in Damascus. So when, he, when Saul goes back to Damascus, the guy who is uh, an ambassador of the king who he's ticked off in Arabia for probably doing the very same thing he's doing in Damascus, he rouses the troops against Saul. They seek for his life. And the story ends in a very undignified ex exit from the city. Saul is let down. I remember as a little boy reading the story. My mom would read me the story, and I thought that was an amazing bit. Saul getting let down. There was a picture in the book she read to me of Saul being let down over the walls in a basket with his friends on top waving to him as he goes down to the bottom to hightail it out of there. Well, he's experiencing hostility. Well, the third thing that we learn from the passage is that this Paul who's preaching Christ and uh, promoting or precipitating hostility precipitates growth in the church. Because you fast forward to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem now. Verse 20, 26. And what happens there? He, he has a cool reception there. For some reason, people have a problem with this. I, I don't know how you have a problem with this. How do you respond to people who think that, who have a problem with Paul getting this kind of reaction? They were all afraid of him, and they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, why is that a problem to some people? I mean, the believers had heard about Saul's conversion, most probably, and uh, when their old persecutor turned up after three years or whatever, however long it was, you can imagine them. If he'd 
Supposing we'd had a roving mic there, and we'd gone round and talked to people in the congregation. We'd go over here, and we'd talk to this person over here, and they would say, well, yeah, my Uncle Steve. I never remember my Uncle Steve. He used to come here and be in church with us, you know, and then one day Saul turned up at his door and hauled Steve out there in front of his wife and children. They saw him hauling him down the street, and he was pulling him off to prison. You go over to this person over here, and you say, what's your story? Oh, well, it's my... It's, uh, it's old Sadie and Michael. They were great church attenders here. Sadie and Michael and the kids, you know, one day Saul went to their house and we've never seen anything of them since. We've no idea where they've gone. And you can understand these stories. Somebody else over here says, do you know what I think? Do you know what I, th I think? I think Saul has gone into deep cover. He's gone into deep cover. He's pretending to be a Christian so that he can write down the names of the leaders of the church and get them. Some of these people in the early church were reading, watching far too much television and, and they were getting all kinds of weird ideas. They didn't believe he was an apostle, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. I, I perfectly understand what's going on. I've watched 24 and Jack Bauer. I understand perfectly what's going on in their minds. They think it's a set-up job. So you can understand the natural reluctance to invite Saul back for dessert and coffee after the evening service in Jerusalem, can't you? You can understand that. Well, enter Barnabas, the encourager. I want you to read the story of Barnabas because churches need people like Barnabas. People who prepare to take the risk to integrate new people, even difficult people, sometimes risky people, into the fellowship of God's church. This is a man who earlier has been prepared to devote his property to God and now he puts his reputation on the line. We've been told that this man was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And here you see his faith. He believes Paul. He believes Saul. He believes in Saul. He believes what God has done in this man's life. People like this, you know, are not super spiritual. Sometimes you read that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and you think, well, that's really grand. That's really beyond me. That must be kind of some up, somewhere up here. Let me tell you, people who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith believe what you believe. They believe the way you believe. But they believe as you can believe that God can do the impossible, that God does the impossible things. God can save impossible people. You believe that? Barnabas believed that, and he put it into practice. God can touch and transform the worst enemies and make them his friends and servants. And so Barnabas took Saul, introduced him to the apostles. They listened to his story, and they would have questioned him. And Saul would have told them what he saw. The apostles listened to what Saul had to say and concluded not only that he had met the risen Lord Jesus alive, and seen him in his splendor and glory, but that that qualified him to be counted among the apostles as someone who had the authority to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus. Those men would not have done that lightly. Those men would have been thorough, thorough in their investigation of Saul's claims. And apparently there's no hesitation. He gets apostolic support from day one. And what is he doing? Well, he's throwing himself boldly into the work of proclaiming Christ in Jerusalem. Now, we mustn't think when you read the story of Saul that this man was naturally, naturally outgoing and 
extroverted and that this came just easily to him. In fact, he tells us that it came with great weakness and fear and much trembling. He regularly wrote to people, pleading with them to pray for him, that his proclamation would be fearless. Now, you don't ask people to pray that your proclamation might be fearless if, if there isn't a possibility that we'll be fearful. He asks for prayer so that his proclamation would be fearless. That be able to eyeball people with the gospel and tell them the good news. Well, he engaged the very same people he once debated with, who once debated with Stephen. He went to the same synagogue as Stephen went to. That's telling us that he is Stephen's replacement. And just as they could not out-argue Stephen, they now cannot out-argue Saul. Now, here's the thing. The point of the book of Acts, the point of the kingdom of God, the point of the Christian life, is that Jesus is alive and in charge of the world and that he intrudes into our lives, and that he changes things. There's no room for fatalism in the New Testament. The New Testament does not like pessimistic, cyclical views of history or personal living or family life, views that say that things go in cycles and that things don't go anywhere and that change is impossible. The New Testament teaches otherwise. Change is in, because conversion is in. It tells us the world is not a machine. It's a drama. There is an author, director, named Jesus, who can jump in and out of history as he wishes to, who boggles the minds of the actors who know, who, who know their script, that suddenly find themselves confronted by him. I want to encourage you this evening that Jesus is alive and that he turns things around. And so you read verse 31 and you see the church had peace and was built up. Let me read it to you. Verse 31, the church throughout Judah, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Where have you heard that word before this evening? You heard, I'm telling you, before you forget. You heard it from Genesis 1, didn't you? What was... What was the commission for Adam? Adam's job was to do what? He was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What has the new Adam Jesus done by the power of his Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel? He has done this. He has begun to fulfill the original commission of Adam. He is filling the earth, multiplying on the face of the earth, New image bearers, bearers of the image of Christ, who will carry his presence and his word to the ends of the earth. Here is God giving the nations as the heritage of his Son, our King, Jesus. Let me finish like this. For religious people, the biggest issue you face is being able and willing to admit that up to now you have been effectively an unbeliever. You may believe in God, but unless you believe in the God and Father of Jesus Christ, you are believing in a God who is not there. The only God who is there is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the resurrection is saying. 
And on the Damascus road, Saul confessed his unbelief and found faith, mercy, and salvation when he trusted Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the enablement of your Holy Spirit to embrace this great, robust gospel, this good news of what has been accomplished in Christ for the salvation of the world. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.